Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's It's time time for for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Welcome to the second episode of Student Voices, which is a series of biomechanics on our mind. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day. And we're students at Stanford. Uh, today, we're talking with Ricky Pimentel, and, who is a PhD student in biomedical engineering at UNC Chapel Hill and NC State, and Roger Paxton, who is a research project manager for general ne- neurology at Children's Hospital Colorado. And Ricky and Roger, um, you two did your own interview talking about open access. And so we're really excited to hear about that. But first, we just wanted to chat with you um, before we dive into your interview. So thank you for talking with us. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So what got you interested? And in your interview, you focused on open access um, issues. So uh, what got you interested in talking about that? Yeah, so I think open access is an area that's kind of gotten a lot of press lately. Um, And I think we've all had the situation where we try and read a research article. And even if you're on a campus with a pretty big library that has access to a lot of journals, there's still paywalls that we can't um, get through and we can't read the article. And so I've been really fortunate to to be at large universities uh, as a student that has access to lots of journals. But I mean, we there, you always seem to find one one way or another um, that you don't have access to. So it's just kind of frustrating. And then you can really start to empathize with um, people that don't have institutional access about our on research articles or research journals um, that want to learn more about it or want to study a certain area, um, especially students and scientists in other countries. Um, and then just people that want to learn more about research in general, it's, you know, the articles may or may not be useful to them, but a lot of times, you know, you just want to see what's out there. And so I just thought it was an area that had a lot of impact and potential. And yeah, I was just learning a lot by diving into what is out there and what's been done on open access. So I completely echo those sentiments. Um, for me, I guess there are three um, three areas in which I'm very much interested um, with regard to open access. So first of all, um, maximizing the impact of research in an ongoing way and maximum dis- maximizing dissemination secondary to that. Second of all, best addressing uh, my own research needs, perhaps very selfishly, but trying to put together the best research that I possibly can. And to that end, the more sor- more resources that I have, the better off I'm likely to be. And third, um, making as much uh, of science available to the lay public as possible. Yeah, and and we appreciate you guys really diving deep into this and um, reaching out to people that are also interested in this topic and um, conducting the interview. Do you guys have any, do you have any advice for other students that might want to do a student voices episode? Like how was it for you and would you recommend any tips? Yeah, I kind of got into this just because I was at a conference. I was at ISBASB and I saw um, Melissa and Hannah talking and I was like, oh my gosh, like I've listened to all their episodes. Like I want to talk with them and just like introduce myself. And of course they're like, yeah, we're going to do this student voices thing. You should totally, um, you know, jump on board with it. And so we then we started like emailing a little bit after the conference 
Um, and they said it's really easy to get people on. And I agree with that because it kind of, like they said, it kind of gives you an excuse to just reach out to whoever. And we were able to uh, interview probably the pioneer or the pioneer of open access, um, the guy that's been with it from day zero, um, uh, Dr. Peter Suber. So it, it was just an incredible opportunity. I learned a lot. Um, and I feel like I made some good connections and also got to rope Roger into this as well, one of my good friends. Yeah, and I guess uh, a bit of insight that I might give is um, don't uh, don't let titles or anything like that hold you back for the people who you might want to interview. So there's a lot of great research going on at smaller institutions. At the same time, um, folks who are uh, regarded as very very big figures in their field, they're uh, they would be more than happy typically to talk about the research that they have going on and, and their interests as well. We really appreciate it, and and we found similar things, but I think. It means a lot coming from another student who hasn't been involved in the podcast. Yeah, there are people that haven't been involved in the podcast. Um, and to kind of like set the precedence for other students that are interested in conducting an interview or have a topic that they think are, is interesting and want to talk about it on the podcast. Because also you had this amazing interview with with someone that you're saying is like, you know, the one of the founders of, of this open access um, uh, concept. And it's really amazing to be able to share that conversation with other people, which is kind of like a open access in itself. Um, yeah. And talking about maximizing <laughs> dissemination. Boom is like the ultimate dissemination tool. right? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to uh, listen to the interview and um, learn from your conversations. Thank you, Hannah and Melissa, for providing this opportunity to students in biomechanists. Uh, this is great, and it's really fun, and I think everyone's learning a lot. Yeah, right. yeah. our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Who do I hear? We're live. Welcome, Boom listeners. My name is Ricky Pimentel. I am a PhD student at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and at North Carolina State University. Um, this is an episode of Student Voices, uh, where students in biomechanics are recording on behalf of the Boom team to share our experiences and our interests with the biomechanics field. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two guests. Um, so I'll let you both introduce yourself right now. Uh, my name is Roger Paxton. I am Research Project Manager for General Neurology at Children's Hospital Colorado. Hi, I'm Peter Suber. I'm the Director of the Office for Scholarly Communication at Harvard. Awesome. Thank you, Roger and Peter, for joining us today. And we're going to be talking about open access. And we have what I believe is the pioneer of the open access movement, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Dr. Peter Suber. Uh, is this is this uh, title correct, Dr. Suber? I wouldn't use that title for myself, but I've been in it for a long time, and I was one of the early voices that helped spread the word. Um, so can you talk with us about how you got involved with open access? Sure. Uh, I was a professor of philosophy uh, starting in the early 80s, and I was a publishing philosopher at the time the internet and web came along. And I was also kind of geeky, so I put my publications on the web as soon as I could. 
uh, primarily to play with HTML and see how that worked. <clears throat> uh, but then I noticed uh, unexpectedly that the online versions of my articles got more scholarly attention, got more or stimulated more uh, serious feedback from scholars in my field than the print versions of the same publications. And some of those print publications had been 10 years old and had barely elicited any uh, serious correspondence. But the uh, online versions, which were also free, of course, they were free online, uh, stimulated serious correspondence almost from the moment they went online. So what started out as a kind of geeky exploration of this very cool new thing uh, turned into a realization that the web was a medium for serious scholarship. And I began to look around to see which other scholars had noticed that and were doing something about it. I hoped others were doing something so that I could just follow along. I had a full-time job uh, and I wanted to do that job and just pay attention on the side to this uh, fascinating new development. But very, very few people were paying attention to that uh, or doing anything about it. So I began to uh, dig and uh, publicize what I was finding. Uh, the very few scholarly projects that were putting their work online and making them free. Uh, and I began to analyze them and uh, publicize them, as I say, broadcast them, spread the word about them, uh, and encourage others to do the same. And even though I wished other, somebody else had done that so I could have read their work, uh, I ended up turning into uh, the expert that I had been waiting for. And after a couple of years, I launched a newsletter devoted to open access. At the time, that term hadn't been coined, so I called it free online scholarship. And I published it uh, until uh, the Budapest Open Access Initiative came along. I was uh, at the table for that, and we coined the term open access, and I changed the title of my newsletter to the open access newsletter and began calling it open access ever since. And as you can tell, the term has spread. That's great. And really interesting how you almost catalyzed a, a movement there, Peter. Um, how long did it take for uh, publishers to sort of catch on to your game? And, and how did they respond to that? Uh, publishers noticed fairly early. And I think because we were very small uh, and the proponents were few in number, they were not alarmed. Obviously, they didn't support this. They were not going to switch to open access on their own. But it quickly got bigger. That is, more and more scholars saw the point. Uh, and began advocating it and uh, making their own work open. And eventually it became big enough to be threatening. And I would say the almost universal reaction of publishers, very, very small number of exceptions, was that this was harmful. And of course, they, their objections were exaggerated. And I want to say this in the most compassionate way. Uh, they had a financial interest in stopping open access, but they also had, let's call it a beginner's misunderstanding about open access. There's a period when some very new thing is simply misunderstood because it's very new. Uh, even if uh, the same uh, critics eventually turn into cynical uh, misunderstanders and misrepresenters of the movement, uh, at the beginning, I can't really blame them for misunderstanding because it was a new thing. And so a lot of their objections were based on ignorance and misunderstanding. And in that sense, they were easy to answer. Uh, and when they saw that their objections were based on false assumptions, I think they felt a little beleaguered and uh, certainly defensive. And so I kept expecting them to raise more sophisticated objections based on evidence. Uh, that almost never happened. <clears throat> However, uh, 
they did organize, and I think they had a hard time strategizing about how to push back against this. It was a kind of threat they had not faced before. This was a popular movement. It wasn't, uh, let's say, a business rival or a competitor. Uh, and the people in the movement were their own authors and their own readers, and they couldn't push back too hard against them. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and eventually, uh, publishers, some publishers, a small number of publishers, began adopting open access themselves and endorsing it. These tended to be uh, smaller nonprofit uh, publishers. The large for-profit publishers uh, have profit margins that exceed those of the oil industry or the healthcare industry. I mean, they are obscene. They're in the 35 to 40% range, uh, and they were not going to change. And they had a kind of monopoly grip on academic publishing. But the uh, there was no, let's say, uh, monolithic publishing industry. More and more of the uh, publishers outside the large group uh, began to sympathize with open access, uh, support it, and criticize the, let's call it the uh, ill-informed uh, objections of the large publishers. And so it turned into a debate. And that's roughly where we are today, except there's been more progress. There's more open access. There are more people supporting it. Uh, more publishers have adapted, even if they don't fully uh, adopt it. Uh, many, uh, I would say essentially all the large publishers now uh, publish at least some kinds of open access for some of their work. And that's a kind of concession that we would not have uh, predicted in the early days. That's really interesting. Uh, I really appreciate how you have kind of the whole story from start to finish. Um, that's not very common. Um, so thank you for all your hard work for the past uh, decades in this area. Um, before we get into what's going on today and more recent things in open access, uh, I wanted to ask a question about planning out um, working in open access. Um, you, I believe you told us uh, before that you quit your day job um, at the time, back around 2000 or the late 90s, um, to go upon this open access uh, journey. And first of all, that's, that's pretty big. Um, so I, wonder, I was wondering about that. But then also a second follow-up question was, what, what, was your, what was your goal or plan or roadmap or how did you confront this issue moving forward? <clears throat> uh, it's a good question. Uh as I say, I was a tenured professor at the time I discovered this, and I was very excited by it. I was throwing my time into it uh, almost against my will because I wished someone else were throwing their time into it, and I could just follow what they were doing. But about the time I was uh, becoming excited, I also had a sabbatical. And at my college, you could take a full year at half salary or half year at full salary. And I took the full year at half salary, so I was living – uh, frugally, uh, but I had the whole year to spend, and I was planning to finish a few philosophy articles that I had started. But I had just become infatuated with open access, and I just pushed those articles off my desk and threw myself into open access. And as I say, nobody was really tracking it, uh, so I took that on as my job. I wanted to unearth all the little projects that were not well publicized uh, and see them as working toward a common cause, actually see them as part of, a part of a movement. In fact, I made a conscious decision to call it a movement, even though it wasn't yet a movement, because I thought that would make it into a movement. And I think something like that actually happened. But I, basically, I, I spent that entire sabbatical year on open access uh, all day, every day. And I realized 
it was terribly exciting. I did not lose my interest toward the end of the year. It wasn't getting tired or old for me. Uh, and when I got back to my college at the end of the year, I was obliged to give it another year uh, because it's an investment in your uh, your work and they don't want you to go on sabbatical and then quit. But I decided I really did have to quit and throw myself into this full time. So I spent that year back at the college uh, tidying up and arranging to leave. And I didn't know how I would support myself. I didn't know how to get a salary. But uh, I forgot to mention, I did receive a grant during that sabbatical year. In the middle of the year, I realized I'm on half salary. I really could use uh, some subsidy for the other half of my salary. So I wrote to a foundation that might have supported open access. I described what I was doing, and I said, could you give me a grant to replace the missing half of my salary? And they said, uh, we know what you're doing. How much do you want? Very, very gratifying. So uh, I quit my job without having another job and without knowing whether there were any jobs in this. I just knew I wanted to work on it full time. And I couldn't do that, honestly, while being a full time philosophy professor. But I got this grant pretty readily. And I thought, well, I can get grants for a couple more years. But again, I was not thinking about the long term. I wasn't thinking about you know, 10 or 20 years. But I ended up living on grants uh, and nothing but grants for about a decade. Uh, then I got a fellowship at Harvard, which turned into a salaried position. So I've come back in from the cold. That's wow. That's really brave, Peter. Um, I mean, having been in that same situation, having left a job when I didn't have another one lined up, that's uh, that that can be intimidating to say the least. So, from from what I'm hearing, it sounds like perhaps. Um, your home institution at the time maybe didn't have a full appreciation of your work and your investment in it, but it sounds like outside parties did have a better appreciation of that if you were so well supported by grant monies. Is that the case? Uh, no, I wouldn't put it that way. <clears throat> uh, in fact, the president of my college at the time was very sympathetic. It's just that I wanted to work on this full time and I was hired to do something else full time. That's great. Uh, that's quite the story. All right. Um, so just around the start of this year, um, there was a lot of news and press on the University of California, um, and they were mulling over their decision on whether or not to withdraw from Elsevier uh, journals, um, and this was hotly debated um, on many, many websites, many fronts, um, and then I think about halfway through the year, they decided to withdraw their subscription. Um, and I was just wondering, Peter, what your thoughts were um, on their decision and how that may impact open access and scholarly publishing overall. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, first, I applaud their decision. Uh, the background here is that academic publishers have a kind of uh, captive audience. If they raise prices, university libraries cannot go anywhere else to get the same commodities. And every academic journal is a mini monopoly. The articles in that journal are not published anywhere else. So if you want those articles, you have to buy access to that journal. And in that sense, publishers can jack up prices way beyond their production costs. That is, they can extract uh, huge profit margins and they can take advantage of their uh, monopoly position. And they have been doing that uh, for a long time. Journal prices began exceeding uh, inflation back in the 1970s. So <clears throat> uh, in the 80s and the 90s, libraries were already calling it a crisis. And we uh, 
not only was it causing damage, but uh, it was at the crisis level. And libraries couldn't realistically cancel these journals because their mission depended on access to these journals. Uh, students and faculty needed access to these journals. So they cut other things. In order to pay for journals, they began buying fewer books. And uh, this caused a crisis in all the disciplines. Most uh, sciences depend critically on journals, or they depend on journals more than the humanities. But humanities depend on books. And because the uh, high price of journals caused the uh, libraries to buy fewer books, it, the crisis shifted to the humanities as well. Uh, they had fewer books. So it was harder for uh, humanities authors to get their books published because book publishers were publishing fewer as libraries began to buy fewer. And so uh, publishers uh, had basically turned their own customers against them uh, as early as the 80s and the 90s. And there was this crisis atmosphere in libraries. And every now and then a library would threaten to cancel, especially to cancel on a large scale. But they almost never did it because, <clears throat> uh, again, they were pinched. They had this mission to provide access to their students and faculty. But long before California, uh, other libraries did begin to cancel and canceled on a large scale. And California was not the first to do that. What's interesting about California, though, is that uh, it's so big. Uh, it's a 10 campus system. It's one of the largest universities in the world. It's certainly the largest in the United States. And I'm going to get this number wrong, but I think roughly 4% of Elsevier articles are written by faculty at the University of California. And they took a hard line. Uh, not only do they want lower prices, but they wanted uh, more open access. And I, I can talk about how they wanted Elsevier to deliver that, but that's a little bit beside the point right now. But they took a hard line and they had a lot of bargaining power. Uh, a small institution does not have a lot of bargaining power against Elsevier, which is a huge publisher. And Elsevier would not meet their terms. And then California just uh, called their bluff or uh, fulfilled its own uh, vow and canceled. And when this happens, uh, when it has happened in the past, every librarian used to predict uh, faculty rebellion because, of course, they lost access to these journals. But in an increasing number of cases, libraries did cancel on a large scale, and there was no faculty rebellion. And this is roughly what happened to California. There were a few California faculty who were complaining about this, but it appears that the majority are not complaining. And at the time California did cancel, they got a letter of endorsement for their decision from the faculty senate. So first of all, it was very smart for them to work with the faculty before canceling, so they were not taking the faculty by surprise. Uh, they persuaded the faculty of the crisis and of the serious steps necessary uh, to uh, address the crisis. They persuaded the faculty senate, and they got this letter of endorsement the very same day they announced the cancellation itself. And then after the cancellation, uh, several other major libraries in the United States issued public statements of support. They didn't have to do that. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of private statements of support. But if you're going to give you a public statement of support, then you're almost tipping your hand and telling the public you're about to do the same thing yourself. Yeah, that's incredible. I've, I've, I've seen some of the uh, supports, but I didn't know that there were like public letters of support um, from other libraries around the country and world. From your perspective, Peter, with the faculty support of this, the very wise approach with the University of California, I think, 
How do other services like preprint services and things along those lines play into this where even though there might not be formal, formal open access from a given journal, there are avenues to getting similar, if not the same information for faculty members? Mm -hmm. uh, most preprint servers are open access. Just for the uh, people in the audience who don't know, a preprint is an article, a journal article, uh, but it has not yet undergone peer review. That's why it's pre, as in preprint. And one that has undergone peer review is usually called a postprint. And the early stages of the open access movement were about providing open access to postprints uh, because the peer reviewed version was considered the most valuable and probably still is. But open access to preprints was an overlooked opportunity uh, for most disciplines in the early days. There are exceptions. In physics and mathematics, there was a flourishing uh, open access preprint exchange, still is, uh, which is kind of a model for other disciplines to emulate. And it took the other disciplines a long time to figure that out and to follow suit. But uh, when you share a preprint openly, uh, there's no publisher to stand in the way. There's no publisher to object. Uh, there's no uh, publisher copyright to infringe or risk infringing. So first of all, there are no barriers to doing it. Uh, or fewer barriers. Uh, and then there are certain benefits. If you share your preprint, then uh, you put a public timestamp on your work and you can claim priority for any important discovery that you made. And this concerns academic authors. Uh, they don't want to be scooped. Uh, they don't want, uh, they might suspect that other people are working on the same problem at the same time, but they would like to be the ones who publish first. Uh, the sooner you can put your work out in uh, the public uh, eye and give it an authoritative timestamp, uh, the more you can uh, prove your priority over others working on the same problem. Plus, you can uh, alert people working in your general area that somebody's addressing this problem and they're approaching it in a certain way. That can encourage collaboration. It can also encourage feedback that helps you improve the article when you later submit it to publication. Those are all to the good. And publishers had almost no defense against this except uh, what we call the Inglefinger rule, named after a journal editor named Hans Inglefinger uh, at the New England Journal of Medicine. And the Inglefinger rule simply said, we will not consider an article for publication if it has already circulated in essentially any form. Even if the author gave a press conference about their important findings, uh, that's enough for us to exclude it from consideration. And the Inglefinger rule started in the field of medicine on the theory, or at least the public theory, uh, that uh, unpeer-reviewed medical research was dangerous. But it was quickly adopted outside the field of medicine, uh, basically because it helped secure publisher monopolies. It helped uh, prevent the growth of preprints, you know, preprint exchanges, preprint open access. Uh, on the other hand, today, the Inglefinger rule is in decline. It has not disappeared. And before authors do share their preprints, I want to let them know, you should pay attention to whether the journals you care about still follow the Inglefinger rule. If they do, you could be harming yourself by sharing your preprint. But if they don't, then you can uh, only benefit yourself. I think uh, apart from the Inglefinger rule, sharing preprints is all to the good. It helps authors, it helps readers, and uh, journals who don't use the Inglefinger rule don't mind. Yeah, and I've uh, I've had a lot of um, collaborators or coworkers that had questions about the single finger rule. Um, and my first question on that was, 
about the copyright. So when you publish a preprint, um, you have your own copyright um, for the authors. And then if it gets accepted by a journal, my understanding is that the authors uh, still hold this copyright, but it needs to be of a certain type so that the uh, uh, publishers make At least the first part is right. Um, when you uh, write something, and if you have not published it yet, that is, if you've not signed any contract with a publisher, then the entire copyright belongs to you. And the permission to make it open access through a preprint repository uh, comes entirely from you. It's your call. You don't need to clear it with anybody else. Uh, when you do go to publish, you sign a publishing contract, and the contract transfers certain rights to the publisher. And it's hard to generalize about this because every publisher has a different contract. But that's when the rights, some rights, are transferred to the publisher. Uh, the most traditional publishing contract gave publishers essentially all rights. Uh, but modern contracts give publishers key rights, essential rights, without necessarily uh, giving them all rights. But uh, some publishers' contracts let the author share the postprint in an open access repository, uh, and some don't. The majority of them do, by the way, which is one of the early victories of the open access movement. But once you sign a publishing contract, you're no longer the sole owner of the entire copyright. Uh, you've given key rights to the publisher. Okay. And these can be negotiated uh, as a case-by-case -case basis, correct? Well, uh, within limits, or let's say with difficulty, because one author against a large publisher has almost no bargaining power. The author can always ask for a revision in the contract, and I encourage authors to try. Uh, I do think there's no harm in asking. I've never heard of a paper rejected just because the author asked for a different contract. But the answer is usually no. Uh, and then the author has a hard decision to make. Um, I've had conversations with co-authors about submitting preprints. Um, usually they're hesitant because of the Inglefinger rule uh, to submit to a preprint repository. Um, I was wondering if you had any, any advice or tips on how to navigate these discussions and to encourage open access? That's a really hard question because some journals really do follow the Inglefinger rule. And if you know which ones they are, and if you really have your heart set on publishing in one of those journals, then you should probably not share your preprint uh, or you should rethink your intention to publish in one of those journals. Another part of the difficulty here is that it's actually hard to tell which journals follow the Inglefinger rule. If they do, they tend not to call it the Inglefinger rule, so you can't just search for the word Inglefinger. And, and nobody wants to read uh, all the legalese on a publisher's website, especially multiplied by 20, if you're going to uh, compare 20 journals to see which ones might be friendly to preprint sharing. So uh, if you suspect that some but not all the journals that you care about follow the Inglefinger rule, it's very hard to tell which ones exactly do. Uh, this is one place where communal knowledge uh, or some sort of crowdsourced cataloging of journals could help out. I think if authors had really good knowledge in advance, uh, if they saw the benefits of preprint sharing, then they could share their preprints and plan to publish in the journals that were fine with that. That's interesting. Are there any efforts at this point for some sort of, uh, I, I don't know, mind share or clearinghouse? Uh, regarding um, authors' experiences with uh, these sorts of journals? Well, actually, there were efforts like this starting a long time ago, but they mostly fizzled, and I haven't seen other efforts take their place. But there were attempts to 
uh, create wikis uh, analogous to Wikipedia in which every journal had a page and the page was open to edits by the public and people could just insert anecdotes about their experience getting their work peer reviewed there. Was it rigorous or not rigorous? Was the delay long or short? Uh, were the people rude or uh, polite? Uh, it, was a pl- it was kind of like uh, Yelp for academic uh, journals. And I always thought that was a great idea, and I never understood why they never caught on. But after one of them died, another one started up, and then that one died, and another one started up. So a lot of people thought it was a good idea, but not enough to actually keep them going. And I don't know of anything like that today. There are catalogs of journals, and some of them are built uh, for the, uh, say, the authors who care about open access. But I don't know any uh, that uh, include the tag on whether a journal uh, does or does not follow the Englefinger rule. I've seen a website, and I actually just checked it right now, um, called Sherpa or Romeo. Yeah. That's not a journal. It's a database. And it's one of these databases that's designed to uh, help the author who wants open access. If you want to know basically what the publishing contract will let you do and not let you do without actually reading the contract, uh, Sherpa will summarize it for you. Yeah. So I've used this in the past to see which journals have... um, open access rules and what types of rules. Um, and I think you're right. It looks like all of this is a wiki so anyone can add to it. Um, and there are areas that are still unknown for many journals, um, but it seems to be fairly correct. It's uh, it's very well done. Uh, it's, uh, it's not quite crowdsourced, but they welcome uh, corrections and updates from the crowd. They base their summaries on the actual contracts when they can get their hands on them and when they can link to a public version of the contract they do that but very often publishers will modify their contracts and they don't do it uh, to undermine sherpa Uh, they just do it for their own business reasons and sherpa isn't always up to date with that but when they're not up to date uh, readers users can tell sherpa uh, this provision is has been changed or there's a new version of the contract you ought to notice So thanks to this crowdsourcing, Sherpa is uh, quite comprehensive and up-to-date. But if you really want the last word on a given publisher's contract, you really have to go to that publisher and read the contract. Okay. Uh, Roger, I'll let you uh, ask a question since I've been doing a lot of the asking. So go for it. Yeah, so mine is uh, pretty pretty global, I guess. Um, What do you see as our current greatest barriers moving forward, and how do you see open access moving forward in, say, the next 10 years, Peter? Yeah, uh, the biggest single barrier today is probably the promotion and tenure committees. Promotion and tenure committees might even be uh, staffed by faculty who support open access, but they're not thinking about access and its openness when they uh, set their criteria for promotion and tenure. They think about the quality of research, which is fine. They ought to. That ought to be their top priority. But when they think about quality of research, they tend to use uh, metrics for quality, which have the perverse effect of uh, discriminating against open access journals. And I say perverse because it's not as if open access journals were lower in quality. Uh, when these promotion and tenure committees uh, give points, let's say, or give greater weight to articles published in certain high prestige, venerable uh, 
journals, those tend to be journals that are not open access because they've been around for 50 years or even 100 years. Uh, and in that sense, they're giving weight to non-open journals, even when open journals in the same field might be publishing work of the same quality. So they're not discriminating against open journals because they're open. And they're not discriminating against them because they're second rate or lower in quality. They're simply discriminating in favor of the venerable, the old, the prestigious. Uh, and it's no accident that that tends to exclude the open journals because on average, open journals are much newer. And it's uh, it takes a while for even a high quality open journal to develop a reputation or prestige proportional to its quality. And so these committees tend to go by prestige rather than quality, or they tend to use prestige as a surrogate for quality. Uh, and that tends to exclude newer journals, even when the new journals are subscription-based or non-open. Uh, if there's a brand new scientific discipline, like uh, you know, nanotechnology, uh, the journals in that field are going to be new too, and they will tend to be excluded from these uh, lists uh, on the same grounds. They're new. Uh, they don't have the prestige of the old ones. And so it's a bottleneck, and it's a bottleneck that's hard to uh, explode because it's very hard to control promotion and tenure committee practices from the outside. Faculty on these committees, uh, I think rightly, cherish their autonomy. They want to be the ones to decide what counts, what should get weight um, in their decisions. And deans and provosts and presidents know that, and so they don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And so you've got uh, department-level decision-making going on that uh, tends to favor uh, the non-open journals uh, for reasons utterly unrelated to openness. And I wish we could solve that problem, but unfortunately, it's a cultural problem, not uh, a technical, legal, or economic problem. The open access movement has faced technical, legal, and economic problems, and we have good solutions to all of them. The cultural problems are harder because there's no easy solution to them except uh, waiting them out. And in this case, I think waiting them out is the solution that will eventually work best. Uh, generational change will fix this one. Eventually, the young generation that grew up uh, as digital natives that want their work to be open, that expect all important work to be open, will eventually sit on those committees and they'll revise the practices as they go, as they arrive. Yeah, that's a lot of factors at play. Um, and one, one thing is that I'm noticing, at least, is a lot of journals are hybrid now. So there are open access and um, regular subscription versions or ways to submit. Um, yes. <clears throat> and if we have time, uh, I'm not a big fan of hybrid journals. In the early days, they looked like a promising way for a non-open journal to experiment with the economics of open uh, to see whether it could recover its expenses. Uh, but now I think it's generally an obstacle to open. These are subscription journals that make some of their articles open, but not all of them. And the ones that they do make open are the ones for which they can get a fee called an article processing charge. And there are several problems. One is that they tend to double dip. They charge a subscription that covers the costs of all the articles in the journal. And then they get this extra fee, the APC, for some of the articles in the journal. Uh, so they're getting more money than they used to. They're getting paid twice for the open access articles in the journal. Moreover, they're still charging subscription. So they're still breaking the budgets of libraries. I said this was a crisis even in the 80s and the 90s, and it's much, much worse today. So hybrid journals don't fix that problem at all. 
And we won't be able to uh, pay for high-quality open access journals in every niche until we can free up the library money that's now being spent on subscription journals. And by the way, if we could, the money would be more than enough. So the problem is not finding new money. The problem is redirecting money now spent on uh, closed or non-open journals and redirecting it to open. But hybrid journals don't allow us to redirect the money because they still charge subscriptions. And in my view, paying APCs at hybrid journals simply pays them to stay hybrid and therefore to perpetuate the problem. So here at Harvard, uh, we have a fund to pay APCs for Harvard people who publish in the fee-based open access journals, but we do not spend the money on hybrid journals. Um, while we're on the topic of journal fees, um, Peter, you've written before in at least one spot, maybe multiple places, that um, these open access journal fees are uh, composed of peer review fees, manuscript uh, preparation fees, and server fees. Um, and you've argued that all of these are um, worthy, worthy costs. Um, you know, we, we have to pay these. We pay these fees to have articles available to all of us. Um, but I was wondering about, do you think these open access fees um, those, in those three categories, peer review, manuscript preparation, and server space, um, do you think those fees could be decreased by using already um, existing repository servers um, and maybe implementing some formatting guidelines or automation for manuscript preparation? I definitely do. Different publishers have different operating costs, and all publishers, open and non-open, have good reasons to want to reduce their costs, provided they can do it without reducing their quality. And the fact that they still have widely different costs proves how hard it is uh, to adopt cost-saving measures. Uh, but there are cost-saving measures, and open access journals are not getting subscription revenue, even if they have revenue from other sources. Uh, so they have, let's say, the strongest incentive to reduce costs. And there are lots of ways to do that. And as I say, the best open access journals uh, in a given field, I'm sorry, the best journals in a given field uh, almost always include some open access journals. So the best uh, open access journals are as good as the best non-open journals. Uh, quality is not the real consideration here. And you can get journals at that level of quality uh, with lower expenses by adopting some measures that uh, traditional closed publishers could adopt if they uh, were more motivated. One reason they're less motivated is that they tend to be larger and older and they have legacy overhead from the age of print and most open access publishers are lean and mean startups. Uh, so they don't have to pay the legacy overhead. Uh, and then some open access publishers, just to be frank, depend more on volunteerism than traditional publishers. But uh, I don't want to fail to mention even traditional uh, monopolistic, extremely wealthy and profitable uh, closed publishers depend on volunteerism as well. Uh, authors are not paid for their articles. Peer reviewers are not paid to do peer review. Uh, the others in the back office who uh, do the layout and the uh, hosting and sometimes the copy correction uh, are paid for sure. Uh, but open access journals have proved that you can do that at the same level of quality uh, at lower prices. And you mentioned the network of repositories. Uh, as a uh, way of saving money. Uh, a growing number of journals are turning toward that. There are more than 4,000 open access repositories around the world. We have one at Harvard. Uh, many universities have them. A growing number have them. Uh, 
they are uh, they provide open access to their contents. They are uh, generally well preserved. Uh, they are interoperable. Uh, they comply with certain common standards, and uh, some new journals use them as their distribution channel. So instead of uh, doing peer review and editing plus distribution, they simply do peer review and editing, and then when they're done, they deposit in one of these repositories and then take advantage of the already existing global network of open repositories. It's an infrastructure waiting uh, to be used by journals. It's already used by authors, but uh, not always used by journals themselves. Journals like that are called overlay journals uh, because they're overlaid on top of these repositories. And it's a viable model. It's probably the least expensive way to publish a high quality peer reviewed journal. But uh, even today, only a fairly small number of journals are overlaid. But I think in the future, more and more of them will be, especially as the repository infrastructure itself uh, improves. Yeah, that's great to hear that there, this is already underway and starting and starting to hopefully starting to be more prevalent. All right, well, we're getting a little tight on time. Roger, I know you have to go soon-ish. Okay. Um, so the only thing I was gonna finish was research fails. Um, so that's a common, or in every Boom episode, we share, we like to share research fails um, so that we can kind of change the culture in failing, of failing in science um, and you know, be more accepting of failure and share our things that we've struggled with because we're all trying something new. So I was wondering if, Roger, if you wanted to share a research fail, and then we'll go on to Peter. Um, certainly. So uh, a research fail for me, um, I suppose, would be um, one study um, that I was involved in uh, during my PhD program where um, we were simply, um, we believe, using the wrong measures. Um, so utilizing relatively gross um, functional performance measures, um, we showed no significant uh, differences uh, between a sham and a control group. And But... We did show um, significant differences in uh, quality of life scores and self-perceived uh, functional performance scores by uh, the research participants. So uh, choose choose your right measures up front. That's that's my take on it. So you didn't show any changes in the outcome in the scientific outcome measures, but the participants thought that they had improved. Indeed, and I mean, at the end of the day, they're they are the experts in um, in terms of themselves. They they know themselves best. So. Um, we did have significant results in self-perceived scores, but uh, yeah, not, not in proper uh, quantitative terms. All right. Uh, and Peter, any, any notable research fails? <laughs> yeah, it's a hard question. Uh, not because I haven't committed any, but because I've so often uh, had to make a retraction or to apologize for a factual error. I do less uh, deep research into open access than I do advocacy based on research or advocacy based on facts as they are at a given time. And I've had advocacy failures. That is, I've advocated for what I later decided was the wrong conclusion. Uh, so I can give you one of those. The open access movement started before Creative Commons licenses came out. And there is a copyright problem with open access if you're not careful. And that is, you could infringe copyright, or you could fail to give your users all the reuse rights that they ought to have in order to make their research uh, 
flexible and possible. And when I was still putting my own articles online before there was much of an open access movement, I had to decide what to do with copyright as well. And there was no Creative Commons license to lean on. So I hand wrote an open license that said, you can use this work for anything you want, uh, provided you give me credit and provided you do not sell it for a profit. Uh, today, we would call that a CC by NC license. NC stands for non-commercial. Uh, and then when CC licenses came out, uh, I endorsed them. I thought they were a terrific idea. By the way, I still do. Um, but I leaned in favor of the NC license, the non-commercial license. And it took me about a year to realize I didn't have a good reason for that. Uh, I had a few colleagues who uh, did not insist on NC. That is, they would let people use their work for any purpose, provided there was attribution. And they didn't care whether people sold it for a profit. And I began to wonder why I cared. Uh, and I realized it was a kind of, uh, what's the best word, spite or resentment. If I'm not going to make profit from this, nobody else should make a profit from this. And yet, if somebody else did make a profit from this, that would not detract from the openness of the work. It would not detract from the attribution to me. Um, I would still have the impact and the audience that I wanted. Uh, so I just dropped that. Um, and basically apologized for it. That was an advocacy mistake. Uh, and that was around 2001 or 2002. So that was pretty early. And since then, I've noticed other people who just get into this for the first time recommend the NC version of the open license. That is, they want to restrict uh, commercialization. But I suspect they're like I was. I suspect they're doing it because they're not making any money from it. And if they're not, they don't want anybody else to. But the goal of an open license is to make your work widely available to others and to make sure you get credit uh, and impact. And letting other people make commercial use of it is simply proof that your work is useful uh, or in demand, but without taking anything away from your access, your impact, or your audience. Because if someone was going to use your work um, to create something, if they could be paid for it, then your work could live on further because they would be sustainable. That's right. And for example, uh, my uh, 2012 book on open access has been translated into several languages. Uh, some of them are commercial. That is, the publisher in the other language wants to sell the work. And unfortunately, uh, the book at the time was under an NC license. It's no longer, by the way, under an NC license. But that meant that publisher had to negotiate with my publisher for permission. And that slowed everything down. And the delay itself uh, harmed the cause. And if it were up to me, uh, I would have let them do it without any negotiation, even though they wanted to sell it. I let them do the translation. Let them sell it. I don't care. It still helps me out for there to be a translation. All right. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Um, Roger, I know you got to go. So I think we're just going to end it right here, if that's okay with you two. That's great. Um, uh, Ricky, Peter, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you, Roger and Peter. Uh, this was a great discussion on open access and hopefully can lead to many more discussions in the future. Thanks to you both. I appreciate your questions. Thanks for listening to Student Voices, a series by Biomechanics on Our Minds by students and for students. If you have an idea for an episode of Student Voices, or if you want to host your own episode, please reach out to us at biomechanics.com on our minds at gmail.com 
or tweet at us at biomechanicsoom. We'd love to hear from you. Let's keep these conversations going. Bit-a-boom. 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 Bit-a-boom.